Good morning, church. Oh, we can do better than that, can't we? Good morning, church. Thank you. You can sleep when I preach, but not before. Okay? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, but we thank you that it doesn't just stay in heaven, but it comes down in your living word uh, for your world in Jesus Christ. Lord, as we explore this most challenging subject of the Trinity, may we know that you are bigger and better than we can ever imagine. But Lord, through your spirit, you encourage us, you encourage us to become more holy and more like your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. As a church, we've been exploring over the last week or so what the Apostle Creed is, and you'll hear a lot of this idea of a map, and it's a really helpful summary. Uh, And today, uh, the curates, it seems, are all having the challenge of the Trinity. I think Simon's out running, um, or he's probably at St. Mark's, um, but we we can talk about that later. If you're confused, sisters and brothers, about the Trinity, trust me, you are not alone. In a guidebook at the, about the found, um, Fountains Abbey, it reads this. Here in the chapter house, the monks gathered every Sunday to hear a sermon from the abbot, except on Trinity Sunday, owing to the difficulty of the subject. It seems that the abbot didn't get an external speaker, he just let the monks have a Sunday off. Not here at Christchurch. So, if this three in one, one in three is so baffling, why, why then do we have a doctrine of the Trinity set out in the first place? Well, here is three points. First, it all starts with experience. The more the early church experienced the divinity of Christ, the more pressure they found themselves to clarify how he related to God. Jesus did not claim to be God, but the Son of God. And such was his authority that those Jews who were following him and who became Christians were experiencing something greater of God than they had found within the temple, which, as we know, is where a good Jewish person went to do their business with God because it's where God did business with them. Those gathered around Jesus could not dismiss him. They couldn't just sideline him or ignore him because something was happening through this man. And at Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist, God declares, doesn't he, his divine love on him. He says those beautiful words which may mean something to you too. This is my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Those who got to experience the Son of God in the flesh, well, they became, they came to believe that in Jesus, God was visiting and redeeming his people. God was doing something new. But it was the resurrection, wasn't it, which changed the course of our cosmos. It changed the course of our history. And it was the experience that people had with the risen, wounded Jesus which turned their brokenness 
back into beauty. Imagine the confusion that Jesus presented to the Jewish friends of his as he declared that God had sent him. The Jews, you see, believed in a specific God, one with whom there was only one, one who had made the world, one who was present with them and active with them. But here, in the person of Jesus, they were starting to see that there was more than just one way of experiencing God. Jesus did not speak like other ancient prophets, telling sinners to seek out God. Instead, he himself seeked out the marginalized in the same way that God sought out and wanted to meet with people throughout the history of the Old Testament. But there's more, isn't there? Witnesses experienced Jesus altering Moses' teaching, upon which Israel had founded its very identity. Jesus claimed greater authority than those of the great prophets of Israel. And he also declared forgiveness of sin, which only God, only God could have done. And he also declared that he would come back and judge all humanity at the end of time. Yet such claims, and anyone could make these claims, were not empty claims, because the evidence we see of where Jesus went, lives were transformed. It wasn't just words, it was word and action. Only an omniscient and loving God could have such authority. Secondly, I think that they realized, the early church realized, that mystery is a good thing. Mystery is a good thing. The early church realized that the Trinity is a mystery which cannot be understood by human reason alone. It has to be understood through faith, through a relationship with Jesus Christ, because the Trinity is best experienced, not learned. How comfortable are you with mystery? Do you like things to be planned out and thought out and written out? Sometimes clarity, though, can bring us greater joy. But I think there are occasions like this in the Trinity when we have to learn to live with mystery because sometimes some things are greater than our own human understanding. Throughout the history, many people have tried to explain the Trinity, and many have failed. They're not here, don't worry. Although our failures have helped us and helped the church to think through what do we really believe. Mordalism claimed that there was no distinction within the Godhead, and thus they blurred the roles of God, of the Son, and with the, of the Holy Spirit within history. Macedonianism denied the full, the, the full personality of the divinity of the Holy Spirit. And according to this idea, the Holy Spirit was created by the Son, but it was subordinate to the Father and the Son. There's one more. The Arians denied the full deity of the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
by representing the Son as the first creature of the Father and the Holy Spirit as the first creature of the Son. Are you confused? If you've been listening, you should be. As you can see, explaining what we mean by the Trinity is all rather baffling. But might we, sisters and brothers, be okay with that? It must have been baffling, surely, for those who experienced Jesus in the first days. But our doctrine helps us to map out this new terrain. Tertullian, in the, la, in the late 2nd century, our early 3rd century, formulated the doctrine of the Trinity, and it took off. Tertullian, thankfully, did a better job at explaining what we mean by the Trinity. And he offers us three helpful distinctions. There is one God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are fully, eternally God. And the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is each distinct, is each distinct person. Thanks to Tertullian, the theology of the Trinity has found a distinctive vocabulary for the first time. So I hope you're starting to hear that the Trinity at its core remains a mystery because God is bigger than we are. Whilst God's nature is holy and perfect, he is also infinite, eternal, and cannot be understood fully by our finite and limited minds. I think the church has never fully tried to explain away the mystery of the Trinity, but it has only tried to formulate language that helps us to develop it, to expand it, to make God bigger than we do. Often we find things difficult shutting us down, but what if those difficult things in our lives opened up our minds? What if we embraced God's mystery? I think when we allow a bit of mystery into the Trinity, it forces us to embrace God with fresh insights. And thirdly, I think the early church knew that they were loved. In the Trinity, we witness both the majesty and the mystery of God's very nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we also witness, don't we, a profound truth. We have all been created out of love rather than need. The Trinity tells us that even before time itself, God has been perfect in unity with himself in love. If God was simply one, all we could say about him was that he was loving. This is because God would not be involved in a loving relationship and he would be dependent on you and me. He would need us to love him so that he had experienced love in the beginning. But if God, if God is Trinity, if God is three in one, then he is not only loving, he is love, love at its purest form. Why? Because there is and always has been love with him in the very beginning. As the beautiful uh, and comical Michael Lloyd once wrote, 
The Father has always had the Son and the Spirit to love. The Son has always had the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit has always had the Father and the Son. In that triangle, they've all loved each other and been loved by each other. And that tells us that God is love. Sisters and brothers, know this. You were not created out of need. You were not created by some mistake. You were created because you are loved. God did not get bored or lonely or make a mistake. You are not a mistake. This is why Christianity is big on love, because it remains foundational to our idea of the Trinity. God, Father, Son, being in relationship, in love, receiving it and giving it to each other. But it gets better. If we, if you and I are in Christ, then we get to share the life and the love of God. Shall I just say that again? If you and I are in Christ, we get to share in the life and love of Christ. As 2 Peter 1.4 puts it, we participate in the divine nature. We get to be in that Trinitarian relationship with God. It goes Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we are where the Son is. When God sees the Son, he sees you, and you get to join him in that divine dance. The wonderful Jane Williams put it like this. The Spirit enables us to stand in Jesus. We stand in Jesus' own place in relation to the Father. Just blows your mind, doesn't it? That is what we get to be. We get to be in the presence of God like Jesus for eternity. The Father speaks over, over to us, over us too, what he spoke over his son at his baptism. And maybe these words will help you this week if you just say it to yourself time and time again. You are my beloved in whom I am well pleased. When the Spirit comes into us, the Father and the Son also take up residence within us. We become walking, talking, missional temples of God's grace in our home lives, in our workplaces, in our places of education, on social media. Wherever you have a presence, you take the presence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit with you. The shape of our Apostles' Creed reflects our triune God because it begins with the Father, moves on to the Son, and concludes with the Holy Spirit. And it summarizes helpfully, and pro probably the best that we have, our view of the Trinity. When we declare our faith in the Trinity, I think we declare that we have peace with God, because Jesus has brought us into that place. Yes, it's undeserved, Yes, it's a privilege, but it's where we are. How can we be better at being gracious to ourselves? We are the worst at forgiving ourselves, even though God forgives us. Again, we see that love moves us, and it takes us to both the character and to the identity of God. 
this week, what will you do to demonstrate the love of God? So, 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 let's try that again. This week, what will you do to demonstrate the love of God so that those who are watching you, and people are watching you, and when they watch you, they see something in you that makes them want to ask, who is this God? Who is this Father? Who is this Son? Who is this Trinity? How can you help your friends to ask you questions about your faith? I really believe, sisters and brothers, the more we live out the ministry and mission of Jesus, the more opportunities and pressure we will find ourselves under to tell people about who this living God is. But there is no judgment here. If no one asks you about your faith this week, it doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. But do try. Do invite the Holy Spirit to allow allow those God moments to happen. So may you be so full of him that when the troubles and the pains of this world come your way, when you wake up tomorrow and you face both your good bits and your ugly bits, may it be the experience, the mystery, and the love of God that pulls you through it. Amen.